Uh, take your Bibles. Let's go to Psalm 44, the 44th Psalm together tonight. And we're going to look at verse number, uh, verse number one. We're going to dive in verse number one. And uh, right before verse number one, there's a little note there. It tells us who was writing it. it. tells us what it was about. We recognize that this psalmist, the Bible, the Bible says, or at least the little header above Scripture there says that this is to the chief musician for the sons of Korah. And we talked about this uh, the last couple of weeks, how how gracious God is to allow uh, the generation or the sons of a man who once opposed God's leadership to allow them to then be the leaders of, of God's worship. What a wonderful act of grace from the Lord. And uh, I don't care what your background is or who your parents were, you can serve the Lord tonight. I'm so grateful that God did that and allowed the sons of Korah to be the, uh, uh, the worship leaders in, in Israel. And so as we look at this text, we recognize the psalmist does not say that it's David writing. We do know uh, that this was undoubtedly uh, written for the worship of God's people, it would have been led in public displays of worship. And, uh, and so it, you keep that in mind. Keep that in mind with me because in the 44th Psalm, like, like others, but almost uniquely in the 44th Psalm, uh, you, find, you find that this would have been a very weird hymn. It would have been a really weird song to come to the church. Obviously, we it wasn't like how we experience it here in our day and age. We don't expect it to be one because we don't cruise, you know we don't sacrifice lambs here. Uh, but the worship would have been altogether different. And when you read this text, you you realize that uh, the psalms sometimes were about things that don't sound Christiany. Like in our mind, what we think Christian things should sound like, or or uh, Bible things should sound like it. It's not clean. It's not neat. It doesn't end in an orderly fashion. The good guy doesn't necessarily win at the end, and uh, and we like that. We like when uh, when the word of God kind of packages it all up for us, and everything turns out okay at the end, and and the good guys win, and the bad guys get Jesus, and and everything is all buttoned up at the end of the hymn. That doesn't happen in this one. It is actually it ends uh, it ends differently than you would expect. So let's look at it tonight. We're going to read the text together. We're in the forty fourth Psalm. Read that with me, verse number one. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days, in the times of old. How thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hand and plantest them. How thou didst afflict the people and cast them out. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arms save them. By thy right hand, and thine arm, and the light of thy countenance, because thou hast favor unto them. Verse number four, thou art my king, O God. Command deliverances for Jacob. Through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name will we tread them under that rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me, but Thou hast saved us from our enemies and hast put them to shame that hated us. In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever, Selah. But thou hast cast off and put us to shame and goest not forth with our armies. Thou makest us to turn back from the enemy and they which hate us spoil for themselves. Thou hast given 
us like sheep appointed for meat. Thou hast scattered among uh, us among the heathen. Thou sellest thy people for naught. Thou dost increase thy wealth by their price. Thou makest us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to them that are round about us. Thou makest us a byword among the heathen, a shaking of the head among the people. My confusion is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me. For the voice of him that reproacheth and blasphemeth by reason of the enemies and the avenger. All this is come upon us. Yet have we not forgotten thee, neither have we dealt falsely in thy covenant. Our heart is not turned back, neither have our steps declined from thy way. Though thou hast sore broken us in the places of the place of dragons and covered us with the shadow of death, if we had forgotten the names of our God or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart, yea, for thy sakes are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Wherefore hidest thou thy face, and forgettest our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaveth to the earth. Arise for our help, and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Father, we pray that you would meet with us tonight. Help us as we use this word as a light to our feet. Help us, Father, to to allow your Holy Spirit to analyze and enlighten us. We pray, God, that you would get honor and glory through our time in your word tonight. Speak, Father. Your word is before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you. We live in an ethos, we live in an era, a time, uh, we live in a, a, a epoch where we have, for the last several hundred years, looked forward to a hero. In fact, this stretches all the way back. We, we take that and stretch it all the way back. Some of the, uh, the great pieces of literature throughout history have been the stories of the heroes. And, and uh, you, can, you can see it all the way back in these ancient times, but then even as we build into today, even into our own culture, you can see that we are still into heroes. We tell the stories, the mythology, we tell the legends, we tell the, the great and grandeur, we have our make-believe heroes, just as the Greeks had their gods, and just as the uh, uh, just as the the um, Romans had their gods, and the Egyptians had their gods, and they tell these stories of great historical or great, excuse me, mythological uh, importance. We have them too. I mean, they'll make billions in the box office with the heroes that we've made up. And uh, you take these these ideas of these heroes, and you you display them, and you lay them out, and you look at what they are. Able to accomplish, and and those heroes come from a place in, I believe, in the heart of humanity that desires for there to be some greater force on the outside that would come in and aid those who cannot aid themselves. Sometimes it's a reflection of wishing we were able to be the hero, and we were able by some greater force to be able to overpower the enemies that stand against us. We we imagine ourselves as those heroes. In fact, uh, you see every year uh, all of the uh, millions of dollars spent on on uh, dressing up and and uh, looking like and acting like and going to events dressed like uh, these heroes or these mythological beings that have been made up by our society. But but it doesn't even stop there. 
It would be easy, I think, for generations before my own uh, to look at the, the, the money and look at the time and the energy uh, spent on building up these heroes in, the, uh, in the, uh, the culture, and they would say, what a waste that is. But can I remind you of the influence of, uh, of stories that were told generations before ours, the stories of cowboys who would come to the, the wild wastelands of America and with, uh, with, with a horse and a, and a cowboy boy hat and one six shooter, maybe a rifle, they would bring about justice for a city that had been held at bay or, or held in some sort of turmoil and trouble because of some rival gang or, or some mean group of people. And what, what were they looking for? They were looking for this hero, this, this cowboy that would come riding in and save the day and win the heart of the young maiden. And, and the whole story would be wrapped up in this one man who could come in and make a difference. And, and so it's easy to kind of look at the generation, the younger generation today, and say, look at all the time and and energy and money wasted on uh, building up these stories of superheroes, when in fact, we could go back on into American history and see the amount of time and attention, it seems almost every generation gives to building up heroes. And not only the mythological heroes. In fact, we have heroes of our own time, literal legendary heroes, people who have done amazing things. We speak of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. We think of, of uh, our presidents. We think of those who, uh, who led in great wars. Um, uh, last year, I, I, I read through uh, uh, Douglas MacArthur's autobiography. That was, a big, that was a big story. But it was amazing to hear how he looked at life. And, and the, the biography was... Uh, well, it was a blessing. I said autobiography. It was a biography. Now, but the biography was good in that it, it didn't just tell the good glowing parts. It also helped us understand that uh, he, was a, he was a bit of a, uh, of a twisted creature. He had good and bad. And, and both of them were kind of mixed up into this one human being because we recognize that as much as we would like to say, no, 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 I don't need a hero. I don't need anybody to stand up for me. The reality is that our culture is built around the idea that there is a hero that will come in and save the day. And even if you hope you're the one who saves the day, you're still built in the fabric of a society that is built around the hope of a hero. And what is this that allows us to imagine that there is coming a hero, someone who will come and save the day for us? I, as I consider it, and as I've, I've, I've stepped back, I've read a little bit on the idea and read uh, some on, on how the idea of superheroes or even heroes in general uh, began to develop and build, we recognize that the problem with heroes is, is that uh, either they are perfect and they have no flaws, and therefore they have no character, or... If we didn't create them, we try to gloss over the humans that we have made our heroes so that they become something other than human, and we make them better than any human ever really could be. It's interesting to me that we need these heroes. But what, what is the work and job of a hero, the work and the job of this, this hero that we have tried to create in our minds and in our, uh, our society and culture, the myths and the legends, that all of this is built to remind or maybe even encourage our hearts that no matter how bleak the situation may be, we can trust that somehow some force greater than our own would make us rise up to a level of fairness. 
You see, I believe, I, I speculate, maybe I don't believe, I just submit to you tonight this idea that maybe the reason our culture focuses so much on heroes is that when things get out of our control and we're unable to control the scenario and situation, it is a bit of a relief for our heart and mind to imagine that even though today is not under my control, there is maybe a chance that some force greater than mine could level the scales could even the balances with this mighty evil or this mighty wickedness that I've perceived, I need to imagine that there is something in, in this world, something in creation that can level out the balance. Isn't that, what, isn't that what these superheroes do? They rise to meet the great evil, some, some overpowering force, whether it's the, the cowboy overriding the gang and over uh, and defeating the gang and allowing the city to live free again, or if it's some superhero that over, uh, uh, you know, overtakes an even greater, stronger, more mighty force, whatever it might be, the purpose of the hero is to level the playing field and even the scales of justice for those who are unable to balance it themselves. In our text tonight, we find the author, the psalmist here, is wrestling out an idea, and I believe you could even kind of gather from what he writes here that he is looking for a hero. I want you to see it with me tonight in this text. I want to look at the the idea of this psalmist and his search for a hero, and from it, I believe we will find out exactly, uh, we will find out something powerful and truthful about heroes in our lives. The Bible tells us here, in the first couple of verses of this text, it tells us something about uh, a, a, a time in Israel's history. In fact, it takes us back to a time, you read with me verse number one. Take your Bible, look at verse number one. The Bible says this, ye have heard, we, excuse me, we have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us, so this is, this is the legend passed down from one generation to the next, what work thou didst in their day, in the time of old. How thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hand and plantest them. How thou didst afflict the people and cast them out. What he is speaking of here is the time and era of Joshua. And really, truthfully, from this text, we gather right off the bat that the psalmist is leading the the people of God to consider back to a time when Israel had had a hero that was standing up for them. You can spot the hero, can't you? You can spot the hero in the book of Joshua. Consider with me the hero of the book of Joshua. And the Bible tells us this here in verse number one, verse number three. He outlines for us the the era of conquest. That is that period of time from Joshua to about midway through the book of Judges where God was doing a great overthrowing work in the lives of the people of Israel. This would be the time of the conquest. So just consider with me, just in in a microcosm, consider what took place in the book of Joshua, Okay, the time of conquest. And this is where uh, the psalmist, of course, is speaking of here in verse number one and verse number two. He is speaking of this era 
in Joshua's day. Okay, so in Joshua's day, you kind of think back on the book of Joshua. Uh, consider with me Joshua uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3. Remember, Joshua opens with, uh, with him leading the people of Israel up to the Jordan River and then sending spies into the land. And so in the very first part, spies go into the land and they are saved. Their life is spared by a woman named Rahab the harlot. God plants a woman um, uh, behind enemy lines that salvages the lives of these two spies. And right off the bat, God is working in the life of Israel. And then we find in the next chapter that Israel is able to miraculously enter into the promised land as God by his own hand pulls back the Jordan River and everyone walks over on dry land. There is also a time where uh, jo- they, the very next event that takes place is that Joshua builds a memorial, not only on the land so that people could see it, but he also builds a 12-rock uh, altar inside the River Jordan, so that way they could always remember that it was God who brought them over the land, or excuse me, the River Jordan. The people then set up a memorial to the Lord for that event. In Joshua 5, Joshua gets to meet the commander of the Lord's army. The Bible tells us he goes on from there to the walls of Jericho. He walks around the walls. Remember, the people gather together, and they walk around the walls for seven days. And on that seventh day, they'll walk seven times. At the end of the seventh time, they lift their voices. They blow the horns. They they sing a song of praise to the Lord, and the walls come tumbling down. They didn't have to put uh, put ladders against the wall. They didn't have to try to uh, launch themselves over the wall. They just called out to God, and the walls came down, and they were given a mighty victory before the Lord. The Bible records for us that from there, uh, they would go, uh, and they would have victory after victory. They, they'll take out the city Ai, and the city of Ai, Joshua will set up a, 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 a Mount Ebal. He'll set up an altar, and he will lead the people to worship the Lord for the victory at Ai. The Bible tells us that he'll go on, and, and uh, between chapter 5 and chapter 11, Joshua takes takes his armies, and they go up against the alliance of kings from the southern part of the country. He goes up against an entire alliance. They've brought all of their resources together. The kings have gathered themselves together to build an army big enough to take on Joshua. And you might remember the battle. They are having a victory, but the problem is that the day is getting dark. It's already setting into evening, and they won't be able to finish the battle. And so Joshua stops, commands the sun to stand still. The sun sits in its place, and they go on and win the battle. And Joshua, through the leadership of the Lord and through the empowerment of the Lord, brings an incredible victory for the people of God. We also know that in Joshua chapter 11, they'll go on to overthrow the kings of the the, uh, northern alliance as well. They have a mighty uh, uh, conquering and victory there. In fact, Joshua chapter 12 is dedicated to just listing all the kings and the cities that the people of Israel have overthrown. In fact, so much land has been gathered and conquered in the first 12 chapters of the book of Joshua that the greatest part of the remainder of the book is just Joshua dividing the land up among the people so that they can go out and get their homes built and the rest of the kingdom conquered. And it's an amazing thing that takes place in the first 12 chapters of the book of Joshua. God has delivered an entire nation, the Canaanite people, over to the Israelites. And all they have to do is go out and fight these little skirmishes to continue and and, uh, establish the kingdom that God has called them 
to build. God did an amazing work, and so no wonder it is that they would tell the stories of this conquest generation after generation after generation, and the stories have been told so well verbally from one generation to the next that we reach the time of, of, uh, of worship among the people of God here, and in, in the time of this psalmist, they're still telling the story. They're still passing it on, this, the stories of the wonderful, incredible heroes of the days of conquest. Now, the Bible tells us this, by the way, because the psalmist is recording those days, as I've just said to you before, that there was a mighty work, that it was an incredible work. He said, we've heard with our ears, you've told the stories again and again. And what did God do in verse 2? He drove out the heathen with his hand and then planted the people of Israel in the land that, that those heathen had been in, and then cast out the enemy. Now, that's the work that took place. But more important to the psalmist is verse number 3. A pivot point in this chapter is found in verse number 3. I want you to see that. For they got not the land in their possession by their own sword, Neither did their own arm save them, but God, thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hast favor unto them, Psalm 44, verse 3. According to this text, the hero of the story, the book of Joshua, was not Joshua, and it was none of the generals, none of the leaders, it was none of them that were the hero in the days of conquest. It was God himself who was the hero of the days of conquest. In other words, in the eyes of the, of the psalmist here, without God, the scales never would have been balanced. There was no way for Israel to get into the, into the Canaan land and to actually take by force that land. They had no shot. They had no prayer. They had no chance. None of that was possible except God was there as the hero of the day to make that which was physically impossible for their armies, their nation, and made it possible by his supernatural might. In other words, God, Jehovah, was the hero of the story. He was the one who set a balance where there was no way for Israel to overcome. Now, that is a beautiful portion of this text, but it is not the main point of this text. Because you see, the psalmist has pointed to the hero of the days of conquest, the days of Joshua, the problem is, is that it seems there is no hero for our story. It seems from the psalmist's perspective that he has no hero. That there's no hero for the day the psalmist is living. And he is saying, I, I've heard the stories of how you were the hero yesterday, but I don't have a hero today. And by the way, if you're going to have a hero, having a hero 20 years ago really doesn't help today very much. Here the psalmist is calling this out by his own voice, by his own admission. He's saying, listen, God, Jehovah, you were a hero for us one time, and now you've stopped being the hero. Consider what the Word of God says here. The Bible tells us, and he's going to, he's going to call out to the Lord. He is telling the Lord, I believe you are everything that you were. Look with me in verse number 4. Everything you were for the people of the conquest, you are for us now. What you were for Joshua, you could be for us today. Thou art my king, O God. Command deliverances for Jacob. 
Through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name we will tread them under and ri- that rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. But thou hast saved us from my enemies and hast put them to shame that hated us. In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. Selah, he says, I know where my hope is. My hope, as has been said in the scripture, my hope is in the Lord. But the psalmist here goes on to tell us his plight. The Bible says in verse number 9 that things change. In other words, there is no hero for the psalmist. Now consider the accusations or the issues, if you would, that the psalmist has against God. These are, the, these are the issues that the psalmist brings to the Lord. I don't think he's accusing him. I don't think he's trying to confront God. I don't think he's throwing down the gauntlet, God, you better straighten. I don't think that's any of the, any of, of the spirit of this, of this psalm. But you do see him come to the Lord, carrying this burden, asking the question, and then revealing to him the issue of his heart. The issue number one, the psalmist brings before the Lord. Issue number one is, you don't fight for us anymore. The psalmist's first issue with God is that God has stopped fighting on behalf of the people of Israel. Look at verse number 9. But thou hast cut off, cast off, excuse me, and put us to shame. And thou goest not forth with our enemies. Thou makest us to turn back from the enemy, and they which hate us spoil for themselves. God, where are you? Our enemies are able to take over us, Lord. Our enemies are able to fight against us, and we don't send them running anymore. It used to be in the days of conquest, you could just, you, we could just call out to you, and you would do a mighty thing, and God, you would get glory and honor for it, and here we are as your people. We trust you. You're our Savior. You're our hero. You're the one that we're calling on. We only have you in mind, and yet when our enemies come, they get to win. We don't defeat them. They don't run off hollering and scared of us anymore. And what it used to be is no longer, what it once was is not happening now. God, you're no longer fighting for us. Issue number two, you treat us like you treat the heathen. Now, might I remind you that one of the curses that comes upon those that do not follow after the Lord is that they are like a sheep without a shepherd. That is one of the issues that that the Old Testament writers, as well as New Testament writers, would put before the people of Israel. If you come to me, I'll be a shepherd, and you will be a sheep, and you have a shepherd. But if you don't follow after me, you will be a sheep without a shepherd. That's a very scary thing, especially as I am one who's learned to love and adore the fact that my shepherd is a part of my life. I don't want him to ever not be a part of my life. And God here is saying, listen, you don't want to be one, or the psalmist is saying, I don't ever want to be a sheep without my shepherd, but I feel as if you are now treating me like you treat the heathen. In verse number 11, look what he says. Thou hast given us like sheep appointed for meat. Thou hast scattered us among the heathen. Thou sellest thy people for naught, and thou dost increase thy wealth by their price. God, why are you treating us like we are heathen? You, do, you, don't, you don't behave like that with us. God, you, you treat the heathen one way, and you treat us differently. The saints are obviously going to be treated different than the heathen does. So, God, I want you to even this out. You can't let us go through trouble and trial like you let the heathen. They don't trust you. They don't believe in you. Make them suffer, not us. 
And so he calls out to God, and he points this issue out. I've got an issue with you, God, and you treat us like the heathen. Look at issue number three in verse number 13 and 14. He tells us his third issue, and that is that you make them, you make the Israelites carry shame. The Israelites aren't supposed to be people of shame. Look at verse number 13. Thou makest us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to them, and that thou, uh, that, excuse me, to them that are around about us, thou makest us a byword among the heathen, a shaking of the head among the people. You make us carry shame. Issue number four, you allow for our name to be run down. Look at verse number 15. My confusion is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me, for the voice of him that reproacheth and blasphemeth by reason of the enemy and the avenger. God, you're letting them tear our name down. We are the people of God. They can't talk about us that way. They can't treat us that way. We belong to the living God, Jehovah. Why are they getting to do this? So the psalmist brings four issues to the Lord that he has with what he sees with his eyes compared to what was in the days of Joshua. There is an issue here that I want to deal with. And it's, if I could just be so honest with you, it's a a struggle that I've had in my own heart as I read this text, and some like it in the book of Psalms. And so I want to share it with you because maybe you have wrestled with this as you read through the Psalms, or maybe you, uh, you know, you've kind of had to come to grips with one way or the other. And I want to tell you about kind of how I've wrestled this out and, and what I think is, uh, is a Bible way of looking at the writing of the psalmist. At first, we can look at this text and say, okay, it's in the Bible, so that is every word that is in this text is true, right? It's true. It's exactly the way that it's written, and if it's true, then God failed. And the psalmist is, is calling out God for refusing to hold up his end of the covenant. So that is an approach where we come to this psalm and we say, okay, everything that the psalmist is saying is the truth, and God is doing all of these things. Now, the problem is, is that means that God then has failed at the covenant because God's promised not to do any of these things. And God has promised his people by order of the old covenant that if they lived following after him, then they would be able to expect certain blessings. And the blessings that he is referencing are the blessings God said would come if you followed after God. He's going to go on, the psalmist is going to go on and explain that the people of God have been living up to their end of the covenant. I tend to believe that. I don't, sense, I don't sense or find anywhere in Scripture that would tell us otherwise that they probably were actually serving the Lord. They weren't chasing after other gods. They weren't, as the Bible says here in Psalm 44, raising their hands to some other god. They were, they were in fact, chasing after Jehovah. But the question is, is this text true in that everything it says about God is right and therefore God has failed? Or... What I would tend to believe is the biblical viewpoint here is that the psalmist is expressing an emotion from how he sees this from his side of the sky. In other words, the psalm is the, is the vantage point from the writer. And as he writes, he is not in fact stating the fact truth, because he can't see what God is doing. He is expressing how he feels about what he sees happening in front of him, and therefore he is calling out to God saying, God, from where I'm standing, it seems like you're no longer treating us like your sheep. 
It seems as if you're no longer trying to help us win battles anymore. It seems as if you're no longer interested in holding up your side of the covenant. And by the way, I think that is even supported in the context of this, of this passage because there is a certain amount of measure that the psalmist is putting on his, on his issues with the Lord. That's why I didn't call them accusations because they are really God, it is really the psalmist kind of putting before the Lord issues that he has with what he can see from his vantage point. So as we look at this text, I want us to be careful to recognize that as I see this, the text is not being written as factually true every verse, and therefore God has failed, but rather the psalmist is leading the people of Israel to say, hey, Lord, from our vantage point, it seems like this. Though it is stated, God, you no longer fight for us. God, you no longer have our best interest at heart. You make us carry shame, and you let them deride us and make us feel bad. God, you are doing these things. It could be that way, or it could be that the psalmist is saying, Lord, from where I'm standing, I sure can't see any other way around this. It comes before the Lord with this, and And I imagine that that is the case, that that is what's happening here. The psalmist is writing from his perspective. And as he is writing then from his point of view, he is wrestling out the emotions that are coming with this. I don't want to get into any kind of psychological, you know, trying to figure out and and tinker with what the psalmist was thinking, but I do believe it is important for us to place a context on this passage, and I believe that's the context to put on it. And that is that the psalmist is declaring what he sees, and from where he's standing, he cannot see the God of Joshua in action today. But maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is that the psalmist needed to change his expectations of God. The the problem with this passage is that the psalmist is the one with all the expectations. He is calling out to God based on what he can see around him. And I tend to believe him. They're not chasing other gods. And I tend to believe him that they are, in fact, in trouble. But that is to imagine that the psalmist knows everything and the psalmist does not know everything. And we don't hear from God in this text. We don't hear from God in this psalm. And so we have to recognize it for what it is. And that is there is a psalmist who looks at history and looks at the days of conquest and says, that God isn't at work here. Maybe we need to do that. Maybe we need to exchange or change. Maybe we need to to change our expectation of our heroes. Instead of imagining that God is here to even out the playing field, that God, as our hero, is meant to come and make life easier for those who follow him. And maybe we should change the way that we approach God, recognizing that maybe it is not on God to be our hero, but rather it is on God to perform his will. And it is then, therefore, time for God's people to merely follow God, whether he does what we expect or not. So the psalmist is writing this. And by the way, he's negotiating through this with the Lord, and he points out that he hasn't failed. I said it just a moment ago. He positions himself as the psalmist with the people of God. He positions them in a pretty good light. Verse number 17 and verse number 18, he says, We haven't forgot our God. 
all this has come upon us, yet have we not forgotten thee? Neither have we dealt falsely in the covenant. Our heart is not turned back, neither have our steps declined from thy way. I tend to believe him. I tend to believe that for the most part, not every person was sinless, but I imagine that for the most part, the people of Israel wanted to serve God. I don't believe he's lying, but from his perspective, it seems as if that is going unrequited. That is going unrewarded. That is going without the blessing of God. And so he says, God, we didn't change. We haven't stopped following you, but it seems as if you're no longer helping us. We have been held down and hurt by you, the psalmist says. Look at verse 19. Though thou hast sore broken us in the place of dragons and covered us with a shadow of death, if we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a strange God. He says, please notice it. Check us out. Make sure that we haven't given our hands to another God, but we haven't. And you're the one who left us in the valley of the shadow of death. We need you to intervene or we will die in innocence, he declares. Look at verse number 21 and 22. He says, Shall not God research this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Yea, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's a dire situation. And he says, God's not doing his part. But what does he say? We as God's people are doing our part. Okay, so one of two things is happening here. God is up in heaven sleeping. Now, that's not my words. The psalmist says that. Awake up, God. Wake up. Wake up. Notice what we're going through here. We're dying down here, and we need our hero. God is either failing, or the psalmist isn't seeing what's really going on. Either God is blowing it, or the psalmist doesn't have the full picture. You see, the psalmist is looking to God and himself. The issue is, is that he is also looking to God to make things fair. You see, God, the expectation of the psalmist on God is that God is here to level things out, to make life fair. Consider Joshua with me, would you? We opened with it because that's what the psalmist did. He opened with this. And you'll notice the way he structured his argument. He has structured his argument in a particular way before the Lord as to point to the day of conquest and help us understand how today is different than that day of conquest. And so he comes to God and he tells them about the day of conquest. You did those things in Joshua's day and you're not doing those things now. What happened in the days of Joshua? In fact, as I was giving a real quick history there for you just a second ago, some of you were probably sitting in your chair saying, Hold on, Pastor, you've got to mention Achan. You've got to mention before there was a victory in Ai, there was a defeat in Ai. And that's exactly right. Can I remind you that after Jericho and that amazing miracle of the walls coming down and people getting to go in and, and conquer the city of Jericho for themselves, that there was one, a man named Achan, who took away from that land that which belonged to God. He took the gold and he took the silver and he took the Babylonian garment and he hid them under his tent. This was a sin against God, the people were directly and specifically commanded, don't touch anything. It is a tithe into the Lord. Leave it where it lies. There'll be time for pillaging later. You're not taking this now. It belongs to God. And Achan didn't listen. 
In fact, the people went into war at Ai. They believed they were going to walk right into victory. They didn't even need to stop and pray and ask God what to do. They just went right on into the victory of Ai and got whooped. There were people killed in that battle. Families would go without husbands and wives would go without husbands and children without fathers because of the sins of this man named Achan. And it wasn't until Achan had been found out and then they had killed him and his family to to even things out and to make right the sin before God that God then came back and gave them victory in Ai. Well, what was all of that about? It was a reminder that God did work on behalf of his people when they were living correctly, and then God would stop living on behalf, working on behalf of his people if they were living in wickedness. And so the psalmist is writing here saying, God, like in the days of Joshua, when they were living right, you came through for them. God, we're living right, and you're not coming through for us. You're not coming through for us. What is the psalmist looking for? He is looking for a hero that can be manipulated into doing what he believed to be fair. Now, I understand. I'm using loaded words here, fair, manipulation. I'm using some loaded words here. But that's what's taking place. The psalmist is not allowing God to speak from his side of the sky. I recognize that that's not the kind of psalm this was meant to be. And frankly, I believe that the psalmist is coming to this same conclusion. And what's amazing is that the psalmist is willing to do so in obedience to the Lord with raw, open emotion right out in front of all of the people who will sing this hymn and all of the thousands of people who will come across this poem to sing it in their own worship. And they will have to hear the sons of of Korah as the psalmist comes before the Lord and says, God, I don't think things are fair. And the one who needs corrected is me. You see, the psalmist was never called on by God to hope things would be fair. Nor did God promise to make things fair. God promised to be God and for his people to have a God to follow. The psalmist comes before the Lord. I don't think he's doing it in a wicked spirit. I don't think he has a bad attitude. I don't think, I really truly believe as this text, if this text is is giving us 100% of what it gives us, you find an honest hearted psalmist before God saying, God, when I look at Israel in the days of conquest, in the days of Joshua, you gave them victory until there was sin. And now today we are Israel and we don't have an Achan but we don't get the victory. Maybe like the psalmist, you have done what I've done many times. That is, I look at my life, and I look at the people around me, and I say, God, why would you give them that and not give me that? You know what that is? That's that that thing in our heart. Some call it covetousness, jealousy. But really what it is is to hope That following the Lord means everything gets to be fair. Can I tell you tonight that there's no such thing as God trying to make everything fair? In fact, following the Lord is the promise that nothing will ever be fair. And it will still be okay. That's what following the Lord's about. It's not about everything being fair. It's about the fact that no matter what, God is right. Consider with me an idea. I love that in verse number, uh, let's go to verse number 23. 
Awake, the psalmist writes to God. God, wake up. I promise God was not sleeping. Why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Wherefore hidest thou thy face and forgettest our affliction and our oppression? None of these things are true. God's promise, none of these things are true. For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaveth upon the earth. Arise for our help and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. You see, what we have here is the idea that psalmist wants us to believe that God is here to work on their behalf. We know that's true. We've heard the covenant. But what is that work that they're calling for? It's found in verse number three. For they got not the land in possession of their own sword, neither did they own, their own arm save them. But thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst favor upon them. You had favor upon them. That word favor is where we get our word favorite. I don't know if you've ever had children. Undoubtedly, if you've ever had a child, you found out that your mother was lying to you every day when she told you she didn't have a favorite kid. Because you can't stop yourself from having a favorite child. No, I'm just teasing. My kids are in the auditorium with me, so I'm trying to make it uncomfortable for them. The reality is, is that the idea of favorite means that there is, there is a certain portion of blessing set aside for one that is, that is just a little extra special than the others. Now you think about that. The psalmist is asking for things to be fair, and at the same time, he is asking for favor. Well, which do you want, psalmist? Which do you want, leader of worship? Do you want God to be fair, or do you want God to favor you? Because what you're calling for is favoritism, but what you are, what you are, really, what you are mourning over is what you see, what you look at as unfairness. So the issue here before the psalmist is that he himself doesn't want things to be fair, even though he'll look at Joshua and use him as an illustration of what God used to do but isn't doing. So God wants why don't you make it fair? At the same time, he is asking for the favor of God to raise him out of the equal situation and make him favored above all who are around him. What is this? This is the idea that the psalmist is looking for a hero. He is looking for someone who comes in and their only purpose is to level the playing field and make the odds greater for me that I could win this fight that I am in. I am imagining that God is on my side. And when God doesn't come through the way I wanted him to come through, then God is the one who's failed and God is the one who's let me down and all the while I can tell you tonight that there is nothing there is nothing fair about favoritism there's nothing fair about it and what God is honestly what he calls for us to do instead of knowing everything will be fair is he calls on you and I to have faith you see faith is the opposite of fairness Fairness and faith never work together. They do not hold hands together. We don't want things to be fair and have faith at the same time. Those two do not work together. They are not, they do not hold hands. Now work with me here. I know it's it's a Wednesday evening. I think you can carry this last thought through with me and you will see something real and powerful about this text. It won't be just a cursory reading. What he is working on here is the idea of faith. 
If you look with me in the text, we won't take time to read all of it. We've read every verse. You can go back and do your work. The reality is is that what he does in the last four verses and what he did in the previous four verses is he is explaining, God, we do believe you. We do trust you. We do know that you would come through for us. We do know that if you would hear our prayer, that you would rise up and you would even and level the playing field out and everything that was off can be made right. God, we believe in you. And this is the reality, that if we have faith in God, it will always require a lack of fairness. You see, I don't have to trust God. I don't need faith in God when, every, when I'm winning every battle. It doesn't take faith in God when I'm cruising through life. No, faith comes when what I've got going falls apart. Faith comes when everything around me seems unfair and somehow I know it will still be okay. That is faith. Faith and fair do not operate together. If everything is fair, I don't need faith. If everything is fair, then my faith is not growing. It's not being exercised. It is not increasing. No, the people of God were never meant to have everything fair. They were meant to have faith. They were meant to go through situations that were undoubtedly unfair, but God was the one who would carry them through it. Even if he never sorted it all out, even if he never fixed it the way I wanted it, I could trust that God would be the one who brought me through. And by the way, that is the way that it happened back there in Jericho. God didn't make things fair. God brought them through even though there were walls thicker than they could have surmounted. Even though their armies were greater than they could have defeated. Even though the enemy was mighty. And even though they had been there a long time and had existing armies, they were able to topple every one. Not because God was the one who came in and made things fair, but because when things were not fair, faith would get the job done. And so God was calling on them to have faith. And the psalmist is saying, listen, Lord, I don't see things are fair. And frankly, my faith isn't willing to bridge the distance between what I saw back then and what I see today. If you want an illustration of something that is highly unfair, and yet covered in faith, you must look at the cross of Calvary. There is nothing fair about the cross. The perfect, innocent, spotless lamb of God. Arms stretched out and nailed to a rugged cross so that his blood could cover the sins of wicked individuals like you and me and wash us clean and make us right with a holy God. Not because of our work, not because of our effort. In fact, the Bible says that it was in spite of our sin. Romans 5.8, God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know what's unfair? The cross was unfair. The innocent died for the wicked. And all it takes is faith to call on it. What is unfair is that Jesus gave his life so that you and I could have eternal life. What is unfair is the way Jesus was treated. Oh, by the way, can you hear that voice as you look at this text? Can you hear the voice of Jesus? Consider it in verse number nine. Thou hast cast off and put me to shame and goest not forth 
with our armies. Can I remind you, it was Jesus who God turned his back on on the cross of Calvary. He literally did abandon Jesus. Thou makest us to turn back from the enemy, and they which hate us spoil for themselves. As the guards took the garment of Jesus and bartered with it or played a little game of, of, uh, of sticks to try to get a hold of this garment, he was, very, he was literally spoiled there at the cross. The one earthly item he brought with him was given away to some guard who didn't pay for it. Verse 10 or verse number 11, thou hast given us like sheep appointed for meat. Jesus was led as a lamb to the slaughter, the Bible says. Thou sellest, verse number 12, thou sellest thy people for naught, and thou dost increase thy wealth by their price. Can I tell you, the kingdom of heaven did not grow because you and I joined it. The kingdom of heaven grew because Jesus gave his life, and with the blood, with the price of his blood, the kingdom of God increases. Verse 13, thou makest a reproach to our neighbors. Of course, they stuck out their tongues and their lips at Jesus and scorned him, a scorn and derision to them that are round about us. He was mocked on Calvary. Thou makest us a byword. He was called wicked names. By the very mouths he created, they called him wicked names. My confusion is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me. I remind you, Jesus hung naked on the cross of Calvary, and the only thing covering him was his own shame, the shame of your sin and my sin, covered him on Calvary. And the voice of him that reproacheth and blasphemeth by reason of the enemy and the avenger. You see, I tell you, this is looking forward to Jesus, isn't it? This is Jesus who was abandoned. He was abandoned by his father for you and for me. He made things right between us and the father, but it cost him. He was the sacrifice. He was the lamb abandoned and left. All of this, verse 17, cometh to come upon us, yet have we not forgotten thee? Neither have we dealt falsely in thy covenant. All of this, and Jesus didn't sin even one time, not thought, word, or deed. Our heart is not turned back. Jesus' heart was right there perfect all the time. Neither have we have our steps declined from thy way. Jesus never stepped away from righteousness. Though thou hast sore broken us in the place of dragons, of course there is no greater dragon than Satan himself, and God delivered Jesus to that very location so that Satan himself could crush after Jesus or bite after Jesus according to the proverb or according to the prophecy of Genesis 3:15 we recognize that this was the the destruction plan for Jesus he covered us with the shadow of death if we have forgotten the name of our god our or stretched out a hand to strange god shall not god search this out for he knoweth the secrets of the heart yea for thy sake are we killed all the day long and counted as sheep for the slaughter. Can I tell you? It is Jesus. Jesus is the one who reminds us that when God doesn't seem fair and when your whole life doesn't seem fair, can I tell you, Christian, Calvary wasn't fair. Calvary wasn't fair. We can't look at this life and see as if, act as if we've been mistreated. If you've had the grace of God in your life, even one day you have had it unfair. You are enjoying the favor of God and the very anointed one of heaven, the Messiah come to us, the Son of God, had been abandoned 
and left to the slaughter of the dragon and did so for you and for me. My friend, the psalmist is declaring here something we must all deal with, and that is sometimes life won't be fair. That is the time for faith. You see, the cross proves there is nothing fair about faith. I love you, Christian. I hope you have a blessed week. And I hope that we would find joy and life beyond trying to make things fair. And tonight, hold up the shield of faith. And where it's hard to trust, have faith instead. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for these dear people. I'm so grateful that we get to come together and worship you by hearing your word and understanding what you've said. And we pray that you are honored and glorified in everything said and done. And we ask that you would let us abandon our ideas of fairness, that we might trust and have faith in you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.